Okay, welcome back to From Bench to Bedside, where I'm going to be covering the history of medical development, leading leading edge technology, and um, this is the first big kind of long format episode I'm going to do, and I decided to take on a massive topic, which is the history and development of vaccination. So um, I'm not going to be able to cover it in its entirety, because it is huge. It is a huge topic. Um, I Lots of research went into this. And today I'm really excited that I have a special guest helping me with the first podcast. Um, so please welcome Dr. Zachary Rubin of the Chicago land area. All right, welcome Zach. Thanks for joining me today. Thanks so much for having me. I'm so excited to be talking to you about this. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I couldn't have thought of a better person to bring on for kind of a first long format podcast because we've known each other for a little bit, right? Absolutely. It's been a couple of years now that we've worked together on social media, talking about the COVID-19 pandemic and providing evidence-based information, as well as trying to debunk all the misinformation that's been circulating online. It's been a heavy task, but you and I have worked really closely on this endeavor and it's been a lot of fun doing this live, but now we're kind of talking about it live together, but it's going to be recorded for everybody else to hear. And I'm so excited to just let this get loose. Let's just talk about all these different interesting topics. And <laughs> as I was doing research for this, I was learning some things that I didn't know about before. So I'm excited to share that with people. That That is so cool. So just so everyone gets a refresher, maybe people who aren't our followers might be listening to this. Um, I am a PhD trained immunologist, and that is my area of specialty. That is why I'm qualified to talk about health, medicine, immune responses. Um, I got my PhD out of a department of physiology and biophysics, so worked with a lot of MDs, have a broad exposure to the field, both from the bench side research science, which is my specialty, to a little bit of a little bit of clinical level interaction. And then um, how about you? What's your background? So I'm a double board certified physician with, with a medical degree. I started out in general pediatrics and then went into allergy clinical immunology. Uh, I can take care of all ages, but my background in doing general pediatrics and allergy immunology gives me a lot of opportunities to help people understand what vaccines are and think about it from the other lens of it, which is what are those, the, the benefits, but also the risks in terms of adverse reactions to vaccines. So as an example, when the COVID vaccines first came out, we were learning about what are the different types of systemic reactogenicity, the different side effects of it, you know, namely allergic reactions to it. And that was something that I was seeing firsthand and collaborating with a lot of physicians across the country about. And so I've really learned deeply about how our immune system responds normally to vaccines, but also how they can abnormally respond to, to vaccines. Yeah, and all, all deeply important. So for this first episode, because it's kind of how I got into social media communication, it's how you and I met, really wanted to tackle the history of vaccination all the way up to today and what new technologies are emerging. And that is very ambitious. So I know you've taken a lot of notes in your research to put this together. Yeah. Uh, I have two to try to bring you guys some of the, the interesting history um, all the way back. So if you see me scrolling through, maybe they'll sponsor me someday. I have my remarkable pad here, um, which encourages copious notes because I'm not wasting paper. <laughs> but, Bench to uh, Bedside podcast, not sponsored by Remarkable, but not, maybe not someday. Yet. Maybe, maybe. <laughs> I've got Remarkable 1 and 2. <laughs> Versus I'm sponsored by Big Paper with my uh, five pages of notes. Disclaimer. Uh, big Paper. Disclaimer. Big paper. Exactly. They line my, my pockets full of paper cuts. So. <laughs> All right. So let us, let us start way back in the early days of recorded history um, with what was kind of a precursor to vaccination. It's called variolation. And we can explain why that makes sense from an immunological perspective. But do you want to talk about the practice of variolation real quick and what it is? Yeah. So a lot of this stems from a disease called smallpox and the ability for 
ancient civilizations to try to decrease the chances of getting severely ill from smallpox because one form of smallpox kills about one third of people. It's a highly contagious, 30%. highly deadly disease. And so it, there's a lot of and debates as a, to- It leaves a lot of other people scarred for life too. So it, you yeah. know, people are walking around horribly scarred from this. Not only did they lose maybe one third of their family, friends and family, but when there was an outbreak, you know, people would be scarred permanently for life across their face, their body, everything. So this is very much present in the minds of people for thousands of years. Absolutely. And it would, it would seemingly wipe out whole communities in terms of mm -hmm. how devastating it can be. And it's highly contagious. And so there's debates about when this practice of variolation started, but some people debate it could be as early as 200 BCE. In, in different communities throughout China and Asia, in mm -hmm. Africa, uh, where there's basically this practice of people who had smallpox, they developed these pus-filled lesions that they would take the scabs or the pus and dry it out and put it into some type of extract that they would then reintroduce into somebody else's body, mm -hmm. which in essence would allow the immune response to help remember that in case it came into contact in future to either help prevent the disease or significantly reduce the severity of disease to increase survivability. And so a lot of this was passed on through oral traditions. And, and so we start getting some writings as early as from what I saw from like 1180, maybe even mm -hmm. earlier than that, but around 1180 to 1580 is where we're really starting to see writings of this happening. Exactly, exactly. So a lot of the early writings um, came out of India and came out of China, where um, this practice of variolation was done for a very long time before it even stopped, started getting recorded in writing. So early writings were like, yeah, we've been doing this for hundreds of years. And they would take the pustules, which contained dead virus, right? And they would expose people to them in, in one of two ways. They would either blow it up their nose, which... Great. Um, That's called good. encephalation. Ence yeah. Yes, thank you, encephalation. Um, I'm going to try to, you can bring in um, the technical words on some of this. I'll try my best not to. Um, so people know what we're talking about. Because if you had said that to me out of the blue, I would have, you know, even as a scientist who studies all sorts of stuff like this, I would have not guessed that meant blow it up your nose. <laughs> yeah, so it's people, pretty gross. Yeah. I mean, okay, look. One one out of three chance you might die, or be and more chance you might be scarred for life, or you get something blown up your nose when you're a kid. And they did it for kids too. The other way they would do it is they would scratch the skin and introduce this into the skin. And both of those ways breach your um, kind of first barrier of immune protection, which is a physical barrier. It's your skin, it's your mucous membranes, etc. And that mm -hmm. is a way when you have a cut or a scrape or something gets into a mucous membrane that a virus can enter your system and or your kind of sentinel immune cells that are sitting there, your, your dendritic cells, your professional antigen presenting cells will gobble up something new in that area, present it to your immune system. Your immune system goes, oh, hey, that doesn't look right. That doesn't look like part of me. That's a bad guy. Let's develop an immune response. So variolation was really, really effective for that period of time. You know, people didn't even know what a cell was when this was happening. Um, Hook was the first person to put, uh, I think it was a slice of a plant cell under a microscope and said, hey, these look like the cells that nuns live in, in a monastery. We're going to call it cells. And, and after, you know, something physical, humans had already built. So people had no idea how this was working. They just knew when it was done that um, about one to two percent of people would die instead of thirty percent of people dying during an outbreak. Right, exactly, and and so a lot of medicine, how it developed, is from observation, trial and error. The yes. earliest forms of the scientific method was just seeing what would happen when you would do things. I would be really curious to find out who was the first group of people, the first <laughs> couple the of people who one? decided. <laughs> Oh, um, I see this rash. Maybe if I take some of that rash and give it to another person, it could it help protect my nose. them. Yeah. That connection, it would be really interesting to figure out who actually came up with that and How why they did. But happen? we don't have, exactly, we don't have that written history there. But it's, it's fascinating how yeah. that came to be. 
Well, the word, the word immunity came from, it was either the Latins or the Greeks. I wasn't prepped for this one. Um, I, I want to say Greeks. Um, they noticed that um, people who had been exposed to something prior wouldn't get it again. And and so, or at least not in, in a given amount of time. And so immunity or free from, um, in this case, infection or disease, it was kind of coined that way. But yeah, who figured that out with smallpox? I guess exactly. the people who were scarred horrifically didn't get it again, and maybe maybe that was a clue. I'm not sure. Yeah, I don't know. But what we do know is that it was passed down from generation to generation to generation through oral history to written history, and then people traveled. They started traveling all over the place. And yeah. one of the interesting things that I read was that in 1721 was when the Eastern world, like in terms of the Ottoman Empire, there was someone who came from Great Britain by the name of Lady Mary Montague, who yes. came with her husband, uh, who was an ambassador to Turkey from Great Britain. And she noticed this practice being done mm -hmm. and decided to take that practice of variolation and bring it out to Europe. And this so, was also... Interesting oh, thing about her. She was very motivated. Her brother was killed by smallpox and she was actually right. personally horribly scarred by it. And um, so, yeah, 1700s, early 1700s is when this all really kicked off. And she was very instrumental in bringing this to Britain. Do you want to go further in that? Well, I don't know if do you have anything you want to talk about from from the side of Great Britain because I have some stuff about the United States I really want to talk about. Yeah, there's some cool stuff happening there too. Um, I didn't mean to cut you off. Sorry, <laughs> it's our first time doing. That. <laughs> That's okay. We 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 normally do this on, on a banter back and forth on on TikTok lives. Yeah. Uh, so this is our first time doing it on a podcast, but. I I don't think anybody really cares. They're probably yeah. just doing their laundry yeah, right can, now. You can follow Dr. Rubin on TikTok, by the way. I'll just give you a little plug there. I'm laughter and light on TikTok, though. I'm mostly doing uh, podcasts, Instagram, Substack, YouTube, blah, blah, blah. The whole the, the podcast, the whole deal, the whole shebang. Yeah, so she was, she fascinates me because she was not only personally motivated, but she had um, her five-year-old son there with her in the Ottoman Empire. And she said, give give it to him she said she's you know she said let's do this if it can be protected from dying the way my brother did or getting horribly scarred like i did um she went for it so in 1718 she had um her son exposed um to smallpox by a variolation and then when she came back to great britain in 1721 um she had her four-year-old daughter do the same in the presence of a physician of the royal court and both of these were, were successful. Neither one of these children ended up um, getting smallpox. And so this kind of lit a fire um, in Great Britain where they said, oh, there, there might be something to this. And um, I'll just finish up this part of the story and then let's, let's go to the U.S. Because about the same time, interesting things are happening in the U.S. about this too. Um, you know, all the way... You know, all the way from from China and India into Northern Africa, and and migrating through the trade routes was this information. So um, around that time, um, an embassy doctor oversaw you know her her son's variolation, etc. But um, the same doctor, I believe, at the royal court. This is <laughs> this is uh, before informed consent, and when people you know did a little bit of experimentation with prisoners. Thank God we're, we're different now, um, for the most part. Still weird stuff going on around the world. But um, six prisoners, a doctor of the royal court said, can I perform variolation on you? And this is after she did it with her kids, okay? Um, can I perform variolation on you and then expose you to smallpox? And if you survive, then you get to go free. And Six prisoners decided to take that deal, and it was successful. None of them died. Wow. Yeah. Wow. And so that immediately, immediately lit a fire, and people were like, oh, my God, we need this. We need to start doing this. And um, the royal family started promoting it. Um, everyone who could get variolated was getting variolated. Um, it did end up, it wasn't perfect practice. It did end up killing two of uh, King George III's son or children, um, his eighth and his 13th. 
but the odds ended up, you know, ultimately being better than if you were just exposed to smallpox during an outbreak. Right. So people need to remember that when we talk about variolation, it's not the same thing as vaccination. No, it's it a is little very bit different. different. And it's it, you could almost think of it like a shotgun approach that mm -hmm. you're still potentially giving live material that causes the disease that could mm -hmm. also have other infectious agents in it. It's not something that's sterilized to the same extent. So there, there were a number of people who passed away from doing this type of procedure. So mm -hmm. I want to, I want to make sure we're not conflating the two to anybody who's listening. No, this is not, this is this not is, vaccination. So this, this is, before is different. We understood immunology, molecular biology. Exactly. It's a crude no controlled test for how this was being done. There were different methods being applied across England yeah. even. And, and even in China, there's documents where they argued about, do we take pustules from bad infections or good infections? And how long do we dry them for? And what's the most effective way? People hadn't really figured this out. There's no scientific right. method to figure this out. Exactly. Now, at the same time that this was happening in England, the United States was getting colonized. It was getting developed. Um, I'm wondering, do you know at the time in 1721, what was the population of Boston, Massachusetts at that I, time? I do not know, but I imagine it was crowded as the city is, um, which leads to a lot of disease spread, rapid disease spread. I don't no, know. Put, what was it? Throw a number. Just throw, for fun. Throw a just number? Throw, throw a number out there. What do you oh, think? Because it's all relative, I know. Like, like. 20,000 people, maybe? It was not even, it was almost 11,000 people. Okay, at that I wasn't time. too far so, off. So it, it's not as many people as, as you'd think for what's now, you know, an amazing city. Uh, but in 1721 to 1722, about half the population got smallpox. There was a massive yeah. outbreak at that time. Oh about my God. Half, okay. And by the end of it, uh, uh, almost a thousand people died. Okay, okay, to give you context again, about close to 11,000 people, 5, about 10% of the population was wiped out in this outbreak at that time. And so people were desperate to try to quell this outbreak. And so there was a minister, uh, excuse my pronunciations uh, on some of these, but, but uh, there was a minister named Cotton Mather who mm -hmm. had a slave. His name was Onesimus who came from West Africa, and in 1716, this slave told Cotton Mather about variolation, and he had the scar to prove it. And so this mm -hmm. minister, when the outbreak happened, started talking to all of the doctors that were in Boston about how we need to do variolation to save our population, and only one physician wanted to take part in this. And, mm -hmm. and that gentleman's name, if I'm pronouncing this right, is Zabdiel Boylston. Okay. Yes. I think so, that's right. So this, I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna. <laughs> I, I don't know anybody by the name by the name of Zabdiel. Okay, <laughs> I, I don't know anybody by the name, but but this physician believed in that practice, and just like with Lady Montague in that story, Zabdiel did variolation on his son, six uh, six year old Thomas at the time, that's and right. he survived and he did well. But while this was happening. There was a lot of pushback from the community. I mean, there was there was physical violence. There was harassment. Zabdiel had to stay in his home for two weeks. He couldn't get out. There was real anti-variolation physicians and community members. It's like the early forms of anti-vaxxers were out there doing this yes. at the time. And despite that, they were still able to va do variolation on 247 people of which six died in, in that. Okay? okay. But again, remember, almost a thousand people died from smallpox. So, so yeah, those are good numbers. And I just want to say there was um, a pastor at the time. Um, oh, it was a really famous name. I'm trying to find it because I jotted it down in my notes. Um, oh, hang on. You keep talking. I'm actually, I'm going to, I'm going to, commit a cardinal sin here and go to the Google machine and try to figure out what his name was again. <laughs> yeah. So this was what happened in England and in the United States at the same time in 1721 to 1722 really helped push forward the idea of trying to find ways to protect people against all these different infectious diseases 
through a practice where we introduce to the body something that is just like that pathogen, right? Or something mm-hmm. similar to it. And that's what we think about when we go to the first ever vaccine from Edward Jenner, which was using cowpox to treat smallpox. But small hang pox. on, but hang on. They're, the, the people of Boston actually ended up turning around. Um, and there was, what was his name? Shoot, there was a pastor. I'm going to find it. This is important because I feel like his name came up before. Maybe we're going to cut some of this out. I apologize. This is me not being prepared, not you. <laughs> if not, I think people will appreciate the fact that we're, nobody's perfect and we are working through this together. Oh, oh, but like I, his name jumped out to me because I was like, wait a minute. And, and his whole argument, his whole argument was that it's not in the Bible so we shouldn't do this, and it's an abomination to God, um, blah, 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 blah. And I was like, oh, my God, why does that sound so familiar? Why are these echoes of the past showing up, right? Um, meanwhile, this is out here saving lives, right? Um, so hang on, let me find what was his name. So you're talking about the anti-variolation? It was an anti-variolation um, pastor in America who kind of drummed up. I mean, uh, there, there was a Dr. Douglas who was, who was very William much. William Douglas, via- that's right. It was William Douglas. Yeah. So I also believe, um, yeah. So he really, really. He said some up. really, really bad things, by the way, in terms of, you know, trying. Because remember, there, the, these are Europeans coming into the United States at the time who were colonizing the land, who were also fighting against Native Americans. And he said some really nasty things about them in he, relation to variolation. He is not generally a nice guy at all. Um, no, so, no. Yeah. Uh, history is not remembering him kindly. And he, you know, really tried to evoke the, the God argument against why you shouldn't get verialized or, or whatever you want to call it um, back then. But it ended up um, working really, really well and taking off quickly. So that was around 1721. By the late 1700s, um, all of George, Washington, George Washington's troops all got verialized. But, you know, he he set out to make sure that, you know, these people were protected. His troops were protected. So that is the first, I think, um, well, in China, they did, too. They actually paralyzed their military as well. But in the U.S., that was the first time we had our military um, given some sort of immune protection against a common yeah. pathogen. And they were mandated to do that. They were mandated to do it. Yes, exactly. Make that clear. Yeah. Um, <laughs> they were mandated to do that. And uh, what also fascinated me about this history before we move on to Jenner really quick was that in 1793, um, there was a physician by the name of John Hagworth, I believe, and he published something called A Sketch of a Plan to Exterminate Smallpox from Great Britain. And it's nearly identical. The methods and the approach were nearly identical to the approach the World Health Organization used to eliminate smallpox globally. It's just Hmm. that they used vaccination, which was more effective, easier to distribute, more controlled. We understood what it was doing um, rather than variolation. It's just they didn't have the methods and and the ability to to spread it, you know, worldwide. Right. Right. So I thought that was was fascinating. yeah, 1775, George Washington uh, had the Continental Army fully variolated against smallpox. So when we get to 1796, that's when the first ever vaccine was given. And vaccine comes from the word vaca, which is cows. And I think that's a nod to the fact that to do a, to do the first vaccine, they used cowpox from the hand of a milkmaid to vaccinate yeah. an eight-year-old boy named James Phipps. And while he had uh, felt unwell for a few days, he made a full recovery, and and that the rest was history. 
But even at that time, too, there, there's always been pushback with, you know, not being able to understand what vaccines are, which is why it's important for people to be educated in what they are. Mm-hmm. You, you see commonly these caricatures of, of people having cowpox sores on their faces after getting vaccinated. Yeah. Yeah. So so what Jenner did was was really interesting. Um, so cowpox is a virus that infected most commonly milkmaids who came into contact with the cows and they get little pustules in their hands, but they go away. It was a self-resolving infection. It was not severe. Um, and milkmaids were kind of known to have beautiful skin because they never got smallpox. And and Jenner noticed this. And so um, James Phipps was actually the nine-year-old son of his gardener. And it might sound kind of insane to say, hey, cure nine-year-old kid, let me inject you with something. But um, the cowpox virus was not killing people. It wasn't even giving them, you know, an infection that would like knock them out. It was just a little like rash, basically. And cowpox is still around today. Um, It still sporadically shows up in Europe, um, most commonly contact with cats and rodents. Um, But yeah, it's not a it's not a major health concern. And so, uh, yeah, as you said, uh, this was successful. And that in was the first vaccine heat killed or no actually it was live virus wasn't it it was it was live virus they collect they collected not heat killed yet yeah yeah they collected you know material from a cowpox sore to Mm -hmm. to to make that and it it became so successful that napoleon and, and president thomas jefferson had endorsed that vaccine um i didn't know that wow yeah yeah so so that was that was a huge breakthrough to get that kind of support from very influential people at the time. And so the first laboratory produced vaccine that comes about significantly later. So that's going to be with Louis Pasteur in 1872. That's when they make a vaccine for, for cholera and chickens. Oh, really? That was the mm-hmm. first one. I thought that was the first was, lab laboratory produced vaccine. Okay. So, so rabies, though, was kind of the next big one. And that really helped vaccination take off, too, because rabies was a death sentence at that time. It wasn't like 60% of you survived and some of you were scarred. Rabies was, you were, it was over for you. You had no recourse if you got bit by a rabid dog. People knew this. Um, and so that was... Um, Pasteur as well. And he had done a lot of experimentation for years in um, dogs, trying to see if he could kind of recreate the success that um, Jenner had. And so he was taking isolates from from spinal cords, rabbits that were infected with rabies, heat killing it, injecting dogs, exposing them to rabies. And for years he was showing, hey, this isn't, these dogs aren't getting rabies anymore. This is amazing, right? And um, so he kind of got the opportunity. It was very sad. A little a little boy, uh, Joseph Meister, was mauled in France by a rabid dog, and that was a death sentence. And so so Pasteur said, "Hey, I might be able to do something about this. Should we try?" So two days later, um, he started a course of fourteen doses of this inactivated kind of heat killed um, spinal effluent, right? They didn't have a way to purify anything there. Um, and and Joseph Meister survived. He survived. And the sweet part of the story was he was a janitor in the, the uh, Pasteur Museum for the rest of his life. Yeah, he took care of Pasteur's tomb as well. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. He yeah. was, you know, he owed his life to him. That always yeah, he, brings he, like tears to he, my eyes. He would have yeah. been probably dead if it wasn't for the oh, that experimental treatment. Ra- rabies At- is yeah. Yeah, it's it's pretty much a death sentence exactly. And uh then you were saying the first laboratory produced vaccine. Yeah, so so the the first laboratory produced vaccine was actually in chickens. That's what I was referring to earlier. So that came a few years before the rabies vaccine. Oh, um, I didn't know that. Sorry. That so Pasteur start started with that with uh trying to treat cholera in chickens. Mm. So, you know, not necessarily in, in humans at the time, but it was one of those experiment, experiments that helped then lead to what happened with rabies. 
That's interesting. Was it successful? I didn't come across that one. Um, I don't know how widely successful that was. I didn't get a chance to read through all of that, but that was, I was trying to find, you know, we, we were doing all these things experimentally, not in a lab setting. What, what was the first time that we ever tried to do that? That was mm-hmm. in 1872. Wow. So Pasteur was working on this stuff for a long time. Absolutely. One, one of the most important figures in, in sanitation and in vaccination early in the history of vaccines. And we start thinking about how other vaccines come about. Do we want to talk about the different types of vaccines a little bit more in detail? Yeah, we can. So, um, you know, people started to catch on like, hey, if you're exposed to a portion or a part of a virus, uh, look, you're not going to get it again. And um, they wanted to find better and better, more consistent ways to do this, but remember, we still hadn't entered the age of molecular biology yet. So, so some of the early ones started out. You want to go into it? Yeah. So, some of the earliest vaccines, in terms of what what types we're talking about, is going to be things like inactivated viruses, where exactly. we have different processes to kill the virus, so that when it's introduced into the body, it's not going to cause disease. And so some of the most common ones that people may remember are influenza, which is given all the time, and polio. Um, so so those, those are ones where, you know, in the, when we talk about the Spanish flu epidemic and pandemic, which happened in, you know, 1918, 1919, we're, we're trying to figure out a way to get, get vaccines out to millions of people, right? That's kind of one of the first, in my mind, mass vaccination campaigns is trying to help people through through the Spanish flu. And polio was then another one that was a ma- massively successful one. But that was more like in, what, the 50s, if I remember correctly? Yeah. That was, yeah, that so was a little bit later. Yeah. So fun fact about the Spanish flu, um, a lot of people don't know, um, it did not originate in Spain. Uh, we were kind of in the middle of World War One then, and Spain was considered neutral. So it got named after a country where it was effectively neutral. But they do think that the Spanish flu, um, which is a bird flu, right, um, originated. Did I get that right? It's bird flu, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what I thought. Okay. Yeah. I should know this. I worked with H1. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just trying to hold all this information in my brain at once when I'm human. Um, no, but it, it originated, I think they, they think, in the area of Indiana in the U.S. Hmm which is, and, and it's kind of an interesting influenza. It has what they call a W-shaped death curve, where um, if you plot age along the bottom axis, the highest deaths were in young children. Mm-hmm. They kind of dropped down in teens and 20s, and then it went up in middle age, which is a little unusual. Dropped down again, and then kind of goes back up again. So it's not a perfect W, but it was an right. odd odd-shaped death curve, which led some people who study the history of this this influenza to hypothesize that maybe there was a prior exposure event to an H1N1 that was not as bad that kind of helped some people get through this. Yeah, so they tested 2 million doses of influenza vaccine during that time. Uh, The results were not conclusive, though, how, how successful it was. Yeah, we didn't, we didn't really have quite the same manufacturing and and tracking that we do today. Uh, Where was it mostly tested? Where was it mostly tested? Mm -hmm. I actually don't know. Do you know? I don't know. (laughs) 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 We are not gods. (laughs) We don't know everything. All I know Um, is the U.S. Army tested it. Results were inconclusive. Probably probably on on U.S. truth. (laughs) That's probably this one. (laughs) Yeah. Now, now the first ever flu vaccine that was approved for military use was during World War II in the forties. Um, which, which one was that? Influenza vaccine. Oh, it was influenza. Yeah, it was influenza. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting, because we had a lot of other kind of nasty things that went around, right? Like MMR, measles, mumps, rubella. All sorts of things were were really knocking people out this period of time. Yellow yeah, fever. The, 
Yeah, the first pertussis vaccine was made in 1939. Mm-hmm. And so they were able to get, you know, the number of kids sick from 15 per 100 down to 2 per 100 pretty quickly. Pretty good, yeah. Pretty quickly back then. Wasn't there a dog that delivered, was it diphtheria? So like a little town in Alaska, diphtheria vaccine? That sounds I'm about of all the things I wanted to look up and I didn't. <laughs> Y'all, we're having a lot of fun thinking about the things that we learned about and have remembered from the past to bring to you to oh, to, to listen to. <laughs> but now now we're just meandering through having fun, saying, Hey, I remember that little thread of information. Where did that come? Oh yeah, that's right. Wait, maybe I need to look this up again. Okay, I'll double check that. <laughs> But well, as time went on during the 20th century, serum run, start, 1925 we, serum run to Nome, Alaska. Yes. It was a transport of, okay, so it wasn't just one dog. It was a sled of dogs. This this story kind of gives me chills because I don't think people, and, and yeah, we're having fun looking stuff up and talking to you guys, but, um, and this is like the first long format of this podcast you're going to get. So it's, it's hopefully going to smooth itself out after like, I don't know, episode 80. <laughs> <laughs> hang in there guys no, it's in. gonna be like episode uh, three you'll be good <laughs> uh we'll see we'll see how steep this learning curve is but um so so we lived through this like halcyonic period of like minimal disease for the most part in in countries where vaccines are accessible and the government has good health programs that that reach most people um and I don't think people appreciate how life and death this stuff really, truly has been for the most of human history. And this 1925 serum run to Nome kind of gives me chills. It's this incredible story of success um, where this dog sled uh, brought in um, diphtheria antitoxin. That's right. Was it? I guess it wasn't a vaccine. Well, um, I I would consider that a vaccine because diphtheria is a toxoid vaccine. So let's talk a little bit about the technology. So there's different targets for how vaccines work. We already talked about inactivated, right, where you're killing the virus so it does not actually cause disease, but there's enough material there for the immune system to look at it as foreign and create an adaptive immune response to produce antibodies. Those are protein tags that can sit around to help neutralize it if it comes into contact with it. You also get T cells that can help remember it. So you have a broadened immune response from that just from having a killed virus or killed germ. Toxoids, there are specific germs that make toxins like tetanus and diphtheria. And so you could take the toxic material and give a small amount of it, and then you make neutralizing antibodies to the toxin, thus making the germ irrelevant to an extent. Yes. Right? So that's that's why. version of the vaccine. You get antibodies to the toxin. Mm -hmm. So the bacteria that's infected you cannot hurt you anymore. And the, and the story that you're talking about, I think there's been movies made about it. I think uh, it has been, too. It's yeah. been very popular. I don't remember it. I'm sure someone in the audience would say, oh, 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 I know that. I know that. You know, if we, yeah. we had comments so section, about, they would say that. So they, they used um, dog sleds in the, the dead of winter in Alaska in 1925. Um, 20 different mushers, 150 sled dogs transported this diphtheria antitoxin, um, which I believe is just a sera. Um, but they transported it across 674 miles. Wow. Saving an entire town of Nome that, that was having a diphtheria outbreak. So, you know, this is, this is pretty impressive. Um, and I, you know, I think that people don't appreciate what that really meant. And um, Balto was the name of the dog. I think I said that right. earlier. Right. Um, so I did get that right. Um, but, you know, he was one of the, the lead dogs. And there's a lot of cool stories about him. And as you said, a movie. I think there's been a couple of movies, actually. Because one was talking about not just Balto, but another dog that was really important. And I don't remember the name of that other dog. Lots of hero dogs in there. 150 of them. Yes. Yes, Absolutely. 
So as we get further through the 20th century, we start getting these mass vaccination programs that come about to help eradicate smallpox starting in the 60s. Yes. And and it's a global effort to get that done, which it's really incredible to think that we we were able to coordinate that effort to eradicate smallpox. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was was an incredible global effort. And like I said, the, the blueprint for it was published in late 1700s. Like this was such a revolution. People were like, oh my God, we could actually be disease free. You know, it was super exciting. And the World Health Organization took that on. And um, in 1980, um, we were declared, the globe was declared uh, smallpox free. We'd eradicated smallpox. Um, There were some long holdouts of variolation, which I think were really interesting. They found the practice of variolation still going on. Um, Let me make sure I've got the year right. Um, I think in they said in the 19th century, but um, as the WHO had embarked upon this eradication, they found it going on in Sudan still um, and mm. in kind of remote areas and villages in Pakistan and Afghanistan. People were still buying um, smallpox pustules to, to wow. have variolation because you can think like they didn't have options, right? They didn't have access to vaccines. And so, you know, this technology really had not reached everyone even, you know, in the 19th century. It is truly incredible how they were able to go from country to country, community to community to do this with such a highly infectious disease that just devastated communities to get to where we are now is incredible. I wish we could say the same for polio. I, I really do. We were I feel like, uh, I feel doing like we so well. So close we so, so many close. times. Yeah. yeah. But then there's been yeah. all sorts of roadblocks along the way that's made that difficult. But I, I think if we can get the right resources and the and the and the right group of people and have the right conditions, it, it, it can be possible for polio as well. Yeah. You know, uh public health in underserved areas is is really tricky. And I think the people that embark on that are are true heroes and that that actually brings a story that connects it back to smallpox um one of the last people in the world to be infected with um was it variola uh minor the minor version of smallpox mm-hmm. um i think it was 1977 um his name is ali and um he was one of the very last people and he was infected by some people that he was taking to the hospital for treatment with smallpox. And he, um, so 1997, he survived and went on to work in the polio eradication efforts Hmm. and did that until he passed away in uh, 2013. And sadly from another disease that is, you know, deeply underserved for which a vaccine has recently been developed and is being given to kids in a couple of countries, um, malaria. Yeah. That's that's incredible. It's a wildlife. He was one of the last last person to be infected with smallpox. Um, We're not that far removed from that. We are not that far removed from that. Went on to fight polio to help with that global eradication effort and then died from malaria. Yeah. When you really think about it, there has been somewhat of, of of a boom in terms of the number of vaccines that are available uh, over the last 40 years or so when you think about it. And so there's all these different technologies, if it's okay to transition to this, to, to go over to these to these other different types besides toxoid and, and inactivated that we talked about. There's the live attenuated vaccines. These are yes. ones where it's slightly weakened so that you have things like measles, mumps, rubella as a combined vaccine that can do that. You have mm-hmm. varicella or chickenpox. Chickenpox. That's a live yeah. attenuated vaccine. Yep. That creates a very strong immune response to help mm-hmm. give very long lasting protection against those diseases. And they're highly effective when you're able to develop a vaccine like that over 90% effective. Yes, for, they work for, really well and they last a long time. Exactly. Um, and you know what I feel like we didn't do? So <laughs> maybe maybe for everyone in the audience, um, remember, we're working out, I'm working out the kinks still. We'll, we'll figure this 
hang, hang we're in there. Two Buckle different up. time zones. We're we're yeah. just doing this on the fly with a general outline and our own thoughts and our own notes. But, but I like I, hope, I like I, I know people I like are learning. The general outline. I like it. Yes, I like it too. I like it's, it too. It's fun. We get to ad lib a bit. Um, yes, but I I don't know if we totally explain to people what a vaccine effectively is. Um, we went from variolation into vaccine technology. But the same principle for the immune system is at work. You are showing your immune system what the pathogen looks like. Maybe we did say this. I'll just we did say it. Everyone. Just say it okay. again. Say so it again. You're showing your immune system what the pathogen, or, or in the case of a toxoid vaccine, the bacterial toxin looks like, and giving it a training session. It's, um, I compared it um, on some of my, my posts and other social media. So like you're going to run a training run of like five to 10 miles because you're going to have to run a marathon someday. Right. And you don't know when you're going to run a marathon, but you, you, you're training, you're training your immune system. It's seen the thing. If it's really good, like the live attenuated vaccine, maybe that's the best training session, the only one you need. So when you have to run the marathon, it doesn't feel that hard. Um, some vaccines, multiple vaccines take more than one exposure, more than one shot. And I think MMR, you're, you're a pediatrician, you work with kids, is more than one, isn't it? Yeah, almost every vaccine is going to be more than one. So both MMR and varicella are two doses. Mm-hmm. Um, so you get one at 12 months of age, roughly, and then the other one somewhere between four to six years of age uh, to get your two dose series. So there's really not many vaccines that it's just one and done. Um, you know, even, even earlier in the pandemic, when we had some viral vector vaccines, where you have a virus that comes into the body to introduce a payload, which is the part that you want the immune system to look at, those were considered one dose. But as we know, with, with SARS-CoV-2, a virus that's mutated and our immune response wanes over time, you really do need more than one dose for that type of a respiratory virus. Mm -hmm. Now, with these different types of vaccines that we're talking about, based on how the antigen, the, the substance that induces an immune response, based on how that's presented, the, the immune response can be very strong and robust and long-lasting. Others may need multiple doses. Um, some examples of ones that need multiple doses are subunit vaccines. So mm-hmm. instead of it being te- technically killed or it's weakened, you're taking one specific portion of that germ. That could be a sugar molecule. We call that a polysaccharide or a Mm -hmm. sugar molecule that is put together with a protein. We call that a conjugate vaccine, right? Mm -hmm. So so those require multiple doses because you're not getting kind of that full picture, not getting as strong of an immune response. So the immune system just has to be educated a little bit more. It needs multiple doses in order to remember something like that. You may may need something like four or five doses for certain vaccines Mm -hmm. in order for the immune response to be more long-lasting. Even then, people who have diseases that are primary immune deficiencies where they can't make as much antibodies, they're a little bit more susceptible to infections that we vaccinate towards this type of subunit vaccine. So when we think about something called streptococcus pneumoniae, that's a bacteria that causes commonly ear infections, sinus infections, pneumonia. A lot of people don't respond well to vaccines against that organism from that kind of a platform. Interesting. Yeah. And that's why we do have so many different vaccine platforms. Um, some people respond better to different ones. And so and then some are some are simply safer and easier to make and um, easier to manufacture and store. So um, let's see, what have we talked about? Live attenuated polio used to be live attenuated. It right when it was in, no in the longer. oral form, yeah, it was it's in the, the oral, oral form. form. Was live attenuated. Now it's inactivated as an inject. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So, so I think my my followers on different platforms have heard me talk about polio before. The live attenuated um, did have some escape, which is one of the reasons, and and it's minor and it's minimal and it's mostly been controlled, um, but you know that's that's a little scary when we're talking about polio. So we've switched to a polio vaccine that um, is not live attenuated anymore, right? It is um, inactivated, right. the current polio. But the live attenuated works so well, it really was kind of one and done. You can find antibodies in people like 10, 20 years later. Now, people in countries where polio is spreading and is endemic do get a vaccine for polio 
more often, right? So it's not the one and done for them that's typically, what, every 10 years or so. Um, but um, we have switched to the inactivated version in the U.S., and we aren't totally sure how long that lasts. We know it gives pretty good protection, but um, something something of interest that's an unanswered question still. <laughs> right, right. But, you know, we have pretty good herd immunity here, which is which is really important. And that um, is why it is so important for kids to get vaccinated for things like polio. Do not skip that. Absolutely. I, I think because of the fact, like we talked about, in the past, people were had witnessed whole communities getting devastated by infectious diseases. You know, 10 to 30% of the population wiped out by these different diseases. And since it's been several generations where people aren't seeing these things on a regular basis, it's easy to put that in the rearview mirror and think about, you know, why do we really need something like this? Well, you need it because you have to, these things have not completely gone away like smallpox has. If you lower the community rate of vaccination, things start to creep up like measles, as we've seen various outbreaks amongst communities in places like Minnesota and California and Ohio where there are communities, pockets where there's low rates of vaccination, that's a highly contagious germ, it'll come back. These things can come back if we don't keep our rates of vaccination high enough. In fact, we've had some higher rates of vaccine exceptions in schools over the last couple of years. And, and that's a trend that needs to stop. And that's why you and I continue to speak about this publicly in different forums, because it's really important to make sure that not only our children, but the rest of our communities are safe and healthy and not going into the hospital. Uh, as an example, growing up, my dad's a general pediatrician. He used to take care of a ton of kids with something called rotavirus. This mm, is a virus that causes severe diarrhea and vomiting. It leads to dehydration. So a lot mm -hmm. of kids would get admitted to the hospital to get rehydrated. And so when I went into general pediatrics initially, I saw none of that. That was not a part of my training because the vaccination campaigns did so well that no, but no, no child really got admitted for vomiting and diarrhea nearly to the same extent. It was rare to see that because rotavirus was one of the most common reasons why kids could not keep anything down and would end up in the emergency room or in the hospital setting. So, it, it, and that's just one generation. How how big of a difference? You know, the rotavirus vaccine came out not that long ago, right? Yeah. So so that, that's just another example of how that happens. And one of the most recent advances, as everybody knows, is the COVID-19 vaccines platform of a messenger RNA. The yeah, ability wait, to- Before we go on to that, did we talk about subunit vaccines? Got... We, we did talk about subunit vaccines. Okay, so just a portion of a protein can be used. Right. To teach or, your immune or... system, because mm -hmm. your immune system goes, hey, that doesn't look normal to me. And that's how our immune system's designed to work. That's how immune systems kill cancer cells, too. They find misfolded proteins that look odd to them, and then you have an immune response. And that foreign invader, be it a misfolded protein or, or a pathogen, gets eliminated by your immune system. So a subunit just takes a little portion of that protein, and it shows it to the immune system. Your immune system does its marathon training, and then when it sees the real thing, it's like, oh, I, I know you. This is going to be easy. Yeah. That's what we have. That's, you know, in terms of pertussis or whooping cough, that's what we have for that. Or exactly. like I said earlier, like I said earlier, strep pneumonia is a really important one for that to happen. Yeah. And then kind of the next big vaccine breakthrough before we get to mRNA, mRNA because um, these vaccines were also part of the COVID pandemic, um, what they're developed are the viral vector vaccines that you mentioned earlier. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So again, the idea being is that the virus is kind of like the the transporter or, you know, the airplane or the truck that's carrying the important payload. Uh, it's, it's a virus that's engineered not to cause an infection and cause disease, but it's just meant to be a carrier mm -hmm. to deliver to the immune system what you want it to learn more about. So, so yeah, some versions of the COVID-19 vaccine from Johnson & Johnson and AstraZeneca use that platform in order to in induce an immune response to protect against COVID-19. Exactly. Exactly. And Novavax uses the subunit version of the vaccine. Novavax uses a protein with an adjuvant. Right. So that's even older technology. Um, but yeah, the subunit or sorry, the viral vector vaccines are kind of neat because, yeah, it's a, usually an adenovirus. It's non-replicating. 
and it goes into your system like a virus would, but then it dumps off an antigen for a different virus, right? It's kind of like a bait and switch, and then it dies off, but your immune system's like, hey, we just got a virus, and this is the signature of the virus, um, and, and it can be whatever you want it to be, right? So um, J&J and AstraZeneca use that technology. Um, Ebola is another example of, of an adenovirus-based vaccine that's been pretty successful and very recently approved for use in some African countries. Yeah. So then becomes the messenger RNA vaccine, which is the newest player on the block, which what makes that so important is the fact that you can produce it very quickly and you can change the coding of it quickly to, to change in response to what organism you're trying to chase. That's what's so important about it. And for years, it feels like it's years now, but I've been talking about this analogy with messenger RNA vaccines as kind of like going to a restaurant. And mm -hmm. so when you want to order something off of the menu, we think about messenger RNA as being like the piece of paper that the waiter is writing based off of what you're what you're ordering. So so if you want a hamburger, which in the case of the COVID vaccine is spike protein, which normally causes the infection, that's that piece of paper. It's taken to the chef or your ribosomes to then create protein, which is the spike protein. So we're giving a vaccine that's essentially, here's the instructions on how to make the protein. Now you make that protein, your cells make it and shows it to the immune system, and then it makes that immune response. And And so that is a very novel and unique way to go about doing that. And what I'm excited about is that type of platform is being investigated for not just infectious diseases, but all sorts of other types of chronic diseases. Uh, and in my space, oh, yeah. being an allergist, we're looking at it from the standpoint of food allergy as a oh, possibility cool. to, to, to use for treatment. So there's a peanut allergy. Yeah. Right. So there's a peanut allergy vaccine being developed where they're trying to induce an immune response to create one tiny fragment of the of a peanut protein mm -hmm. to induce tolerance in immune response towards that. Uh, it's fascinating. So there's there's going to be time before we know where that's going to go, but this is being investigated for cancer and, and other diseases as well, which I'm very excited about. Yeah, and and to add to your analogy there and to explain it to people a little more, um, you said it was made um, the messenger. RNA, which which is the piece of paper that the order is written down on, um, goes to a ribosome that makes the protein. Now, ribosomes are not in the nucleus of the cell. They are outside of the nucleus of the cell. And the way we, our cells typically make protein is the DNA is coded into messenger RNA. That happens in the nucleus. And then the messenger RNA is shuttled in a one-way system spit out into the area where the ribosomes are, and then the ribosomes pick up that messenger RNA and they produce the protein. So all the system does is it puts more messenger RNA into the area where proteins are being made, a foreign protein gets made, and your immune system goes, hey, what's that? We don't like that. Same thing can happen in cancer. So, so this is the same mechanism by which your immune system recognizes something's wrong, something's off, does a training session, and, and then starts to go after that protein. Now, messenger RNA does not stick around forever. It's not very stable. Um, that's one of the tricky things um, about working with RNA in a laboratory, and I know this from personal experience, is it degrades so fast and it gets right. digested, and the turnover is so fast that this is very similar in time frame to that adenovirus dumping off some instructions to go to go make this protein it's it's like the same kind of time frame there and and in studies where I'll I'll cite one that I think came out of uh Boston Women's Hospital in Massachusetts they looked at um Moderna's mRNA dosing um right after and they looked for using some of the most sensitive um, protein detection methods out of the blood and they only saw a little bit of it in the blood for like 24 hours and then it was gone it was gone in in all of the workers they looked at it um i think they looked at a cohort of nurses that were vaccinated early on in the pandemic so this stuff does not hang around it's really just long enough to tell your immune system hey this exists now 
the immune system has another cool mechanism where it will take protein that it is neutralized. All right. It's like, hey, I've got this basket of this foreign stuff and we're going to take it to the specialized compartment in the lymph node. Lymph node is where all the cells in the immune system gather. They talk, they exchange information about what's going on out there as foreign proteins. And, and they'll hold on to it there and they won't digest it because what they do is they present it slowly to the B cells. So the B cells can evolve their antibodies that then target the proteins. So the B cells go through an antibody evolution process. That's why you can get vaccinated on, you know, day one and it will take you seven, eight, nine days to start developing antibodies. So, so that protein isn't totally gone from your system. It's just not circulating around in your blood. It is held on to by the immune cells. Immune cells do this with all the foreign proteins and in a very controlled method that's non-infectious. They've got it in little bundles. They show it to the B cells so the B cells can keep evolving their antibodies against that protein. Um, I, I feel like that's important to know because a lot of people seem very worried about that. And I want to be accurate when I say it's gone from your blood. It's not circulating around your system, but your immune system, just like it holds on to other foreign proteins in a very controlled manner that doesn't hurt you, it's designed to do this with, with bacteria, with other viruses, will we'll continue to make sure those cells evolve so you get the best possible antibodies against that pathogen. Yeah, it's really fascinating how much we know about the immune system and also, how much more we continue to know about the immune system, and immune system that's how, is amazing. Yeah, and that's how that's how we're able to create these newer neurotechnologies, and seemingly at a much faster rate than yeah. before. Yeah, so let's talk about mRNA not being new. Yeah, I mean, this technology has been developed for decades. This is not not something that just came out of the blue. So, so it it, it just. It took the right amount of resources and to get these large-scale clinical trials for it to finally get approved recently. But this is these these are the building blocks that happened for this was happening since what the seventies. Oh yeah, people were were studying this since the seventies. But you know the real molecular biology. Hey, we can do PCR in the lab kind of stuff. That that really started to catch fire in the eighties. And um, the, just just to give you guys a little context on Moderna. Their first mRNA vaccine went into clinical trials in 2016. Uh, they're a pretty young company. Finished in 2018, they had no adverse events reported. Um, that was for Zika virus. And so they've been developing that for a while. Um, but, you know, the real advance with mRNA happened um, kind of in the 90s. So I'll go through that because this is interesting. Um, Catherine, is it Katrine or Catherine? Um, Catalan. Oh, I'm so bad. I didn't have my notes in front of me. Carrico and uh, Drew Wiseman, Catalan Carrico, just won the Nobel Prize this year in physiology or medicine for their work that started in the 90s at University of Pennsylvania. So she was really fascinated with the idea that, hey, mRNA carries this information that we could use to teach cells to make proteins of interest. Can we use it therapeutically? Can we use it like a building block? Now, there was a roadblock where mRNA made in the laboratory doesn't quite match the biochemistry of the mRNA made in our cells. And our immune system is so finely tuned to recognize foreign pathogens that could have different looking RNA, different looking mRNA, different looking DNA, that it was causing an inflammatory response. And their major breakthrough was to figure out if you change that chemistry suddenly you don't have a big inflammatory response to this anymore. The inflammatory response is gone. And that was part of why they got the Nobel Prize, because now suddenly the mRNA technology world has opened up to use it as a therapeutic. I did not know that. That's amazing. Yeah, I did kind of a deep dive on this. I got really excited about this. So that was only <laughs> published in 2005. That's So that part of this technology is pretty new. And so a lot of companies started jumping on it right away. It's a powerful technology. And the biochemists and the immunologists, we recognize that right away. And by 2010, there were lots of companies who had started up to start to develop these technologies. And Moderna, I'm not sure exactly when they were founded, um, but they were definitely one of those companies. And they were in man by 2016 with no adverse events. And, you know, one of the things I made sure to look up as I was talking to people during this pandemic was 
how many mRNA clinical trials have there been? And, and this is, you know, early on in the pandemic, and I just popped the word mRNA into clinicaltrials.gov. Now, some of these were registered, some of them weren't active anymore, blah, blah, blah. But it was over 1,700 clinical trials using mRNA there it in is. some capacity. There it is. This is not new. No, not at all. So there is a lot to look forward to in the future with this type of technology. I'm I'm really excited where where this could go and um where some other potential platforms may end up leading us. It's it's really, really going to be exciting to see. And and so we talked about in the very beginning of of, the, of, of this podcast in terms of where we started, crudely taking pustules and shoving up people's noses or scratching it to what we can do now. <laughs> Yeah, and it's now we're, amazing. Now in this realm where I, I also don't know if non-scientists understand, you say it's easier to create, right? In the laboratory, all we have to do is just shift a little bit of genetic code and we can replicate that so quickly and so error-free that we don't have to grow, you know, huge vats of viruses. So prior vaccine development, you know, all the way up until really mRNA, you have tankers, like tanker truck size, um, just growth vessels for for viruses, for adenovirus, for for whatever you know pathogen. Oh, my dog is making an appearance. Um, <laughs> she may she may she may come in. I was waiting uh, for when that was going to happen. Yeah. <laughs> hello, hello, sweetie. Here, let's get her up here. Let's just make it official. Come on. She's Some like I don't doggy I don't know. ASMR this for the doggy, scientific doggy podcast. Okay. I don't know if anyone can even see her, but. We've got, we've got a doggy. All right. So, um, right. So huge, massive production facilities. mRNA, we don't really have to do that anymore. And we don't have to stabilize a virus and we don't have to make sure the virus is heat killed and all that stuff. We just get to replicate this stuff and put it into nanoparticles, which people have a lot of questions about. So I actually pulled up um, a paper that I think you should all read if you want to learn some more about this technology. And what I'm going to do is give you the PubMed ID, P-M-I-D. And what you do is you go to PubMed.gov and you type this in and it will take you to a really nice review that talks more deeply than we can in a podcast about all of these topics. So the number is 36. 76 9093. So just type that number in and you're going to get um, a paper that was published in 2023 um, and it will go over the development of mRNA based vaccines in a really nice, beautiful, detailed level with lots of great pictures. Awesome. Yeah. So that was fun. This was I great. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me for this. This has been a lot of fun. Oh, I'm, and I'm happy you I hope, joined. I hope everybody learned at least a couple of things. I know I did. Everyone learned I have a dog. He's still, I think she's telling me it's time to end the podcast. He's, <laughs> he's here around behind me. <laughs> that was your doggy timer. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> uh, well, this this was a long one. It was a deep one. Um, hopefully everyone learned something. Um, you know, I have a deep history three of appreciating vaccines. Um, and I hope all of you do now too. Um, they continue to be one of the least expensive, most effective public health measures out there. One of the most important that most has important. really made a, a difference. So thanks again for having me. I really enjoyed being on with you. Well, thank you for joining me and uh, maybe we'll see you for another episode. Absolutely. Yeah. Let me know. I'll be there. All right. Take care, everyone. Thanks so much for joining us tonight or today or whatever time it is where you are. And um, we'll see you in the next one.